Hello, I'm Steve Grand. I'm the executive director of the Middle East Strategy Task Force here at the Atlantic Council. The task force, uh, as may have been mentioned in the last session, is co-chaired by uh, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and former National Security Advisor Steve Hadley. And it's taking a broad brush look at the many challenges confronting the Middle East and based on consultations, a lot of consultations with uh, actors in the region trying to propose a vision for the future that comes from the region for the region and to put forth a long-term strategy as to how we might get there working together, stakeholders in the region, stakeholders outside the region. That report will come out on November the 30th. The last panel looked at the root causes of the current problems in the Middle East. This panel is supposed to discuss ways to strengthen US-European cooperation in the region in order to tackle those root causes. And uh, we have a very distinguished and uh, varied panel uh, with a great deal of experience and uh, wisdom to bring to the subject. And let me just introduce them uh, before we get started. To my immediate left is Ambassador Ann Patterson, Assistant Secretary of the Bureau of Near East Affairs at the Department of State. She was also formerly our ambassador to Egypt and to Pakistan. To her left is Paul Hughes, the Interim Operation Chief for Middle East and Africa at the US Institute of Peace. He was formerly an active duty Army Colonel and served with the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq. To his left is Helena Boguslavska, who is Deputy Head of the Political Security and Development Section of the Delegation of the European Union to the United States. She was formerly with the EU External Action Service and also the European Defense Agency. And to her left is Henri Barkey, the director of the Middle East program at the Woodrow Wilson Center here in town. He was formerly a professor at Lehigh and has served as a member of the policy planning staff at our State Department. So we have a very interesting and distinguished group to talk about these questions today. And my job as moderator is going to be just to throw out to this uh, very learned group uh, a series of questions, big questions, and invite them to, to turn it into a conversation. From what I heard of the last session, there are many root causes to what is happening in the Middle East. But before we can really get to many of those root causes, we also have to somehow deal with the violence that is now roiling the region. Um, so my first question to the panel is, are there things we can do together that might help begin to wind down the various civil wars in the region that are not a root cause of the conflict, but really have become accelerants of chaos and made all your jobs harder? And do you want to? So I, I'll start with that. Uh, so I, I think there's been, when we talk about conflicts, at least we say Libya, Yemen, and the Syria-Iraq theater. And I think there's been considerable progress in Libya, fragile though it is. I think there are openings for a diplomatic solution in Yemen. But I think basically what people talk about with the, the huge contagion in the Middle East is, is Syria and Iraq. I think it's important to say that some of these uh, some of the violence is going to get worse before it's going to get better, but we have to focus on ISIL and the defeat of ISIL first. Uh, and I think there's really been very considerable progress in that. Certainly there's been considerable progress in Iraq. Uh, I think there will be considerable progress in Syria. There's been very dramatic progress against ISIL in Libya. Insert, it's down to essentially a few square blocks. Uh, so to focus on that first is a, is a huge driver of violence throughout the region. 
and instability. And then I don't think we can forget some of these underlying causes and work on those at the same time. We talk a lot in our bureau about the other shoes to drop, and maybe we can get to that. But there's certainly other countries in the region that are on the verge of, if not, if not outright violence, instability. And that's where we need to focus on the underlying causes like uh, unemployment and youth bulges. Uh, I, I'd like to build on what Ann's just said. Uh, there are a number of actors besides just the various states that are engaged in intrastate war. Uh, because we have transnational actors, such as ISIL, uh, but we also have criminal networks. And in, in, in any of these wars, there's always a nexus between the belligerents, whatever flavor they may be, and criminal networks that continue to undermine the stability of societies. And these criminal networks operate essentially according to their own rules because of poor governance and poor practices of the rule of law. Additionally, there is a big elephant, bigger than Syria, in the room in this region, and that is Russia. And it has its own designs that extend, in, in my humble opinion, beyond just the region. Uh, and, uh, and that has to be taken into the calculation of how are you going to wind down wars where you have an external actor on the magnitude of Russia that has its own strategic intentions that aren't necessarily aligned even with the uh, client state that they might be working with. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a huge issue that has to be taken into account. Um, the, the sad fact of all of this, when you have more external actors participating in what began as an intrastate war, is you have an increase in the victimization of civilians. Uh, typically, in an intrastate war, both sides, the insurgents and the counterinsurgents, or the government, recognize that they have to work with their people because, as Mao, Mao said, you know, the insurgent swims in the ocean of the people. But as more external actors come in and provide support to either side, the value of the people becomes less. And they become a fracture line. They, they become a pressure point for, to be pressed to, ex, to increase the pain on the other side. And we've seen this happen in Syria. It's happened in, uh, in the Balkans. It, it happens throughout Africa. And that's another thing that we have to be mindful of, is how do you limit the, the number and role of external actors in these interstate wars? First of all, thank you very much for, for inviting me to, to this panel and, and giving me the chance to add the European voice to, to this discussion. Um, there is, I would like to point out that there is a specific, we, we, from the European point of view, we, we look at the instability in the Middle East through, through very specific lenses. And namely, it's the migration and refugee crisis. This is the number one preoccupation uh, and the effect stemming from the instability in the Middle East. Um, and I think it's, it's not always, you, you, you all know the figures, but I think it's not always maybe fully understood in the, in the United States to which extent it has really shaken the, the European society, societies to the core and to which extent it is perceived as both a huge challenge and then a long-term challenge that has to be tackled over, over years. It's, it has to be tackled with, with strategic patience. And in this respect, ISIL is, of course, a huge threat to all of us. But uh, looking at the migration and refugee crisis, a lot of uh, this is caused by instability also in the civil war in Syria, of, of course, uh, partially instability in Iraq. Uh, looking down the road, also Libya, the situation in Libya. Middle East uh, peace process or lack of, of thereof. This is also a potential factor you know, in the future of instability. What do we do on the, on the EU side there has been a, a tremendous effort done to focus and, and put our, all our instruments together to tackle, first of all, uh, cooperate with Turkey uh, through the um, agreement that we reached in, in March this year, which uh, stemmed the flow of the refugees from the peak, uh, which was at 7,000 people crossing from Turkey to, to Greece at some point. So you can imagine this is basically in two days, it was more than the United States have accepted 
in terms of Syrian refugees from the beginning of the Syrian crisis. It, it just shows the magnitude. Um, this was the first step. And now the compact deals with Jordan and, and Lebanon, done in partnership in trying to, to have win-win situation for the host communities in Jordan and Lebanon, and also for the refugee, uh, Syrian refugees that are there. And then down the road also the, uh, uh, what we see from the European perspective, importance also to the interconnection with wider region, also sub-Saharan region, which mm -hmm. causes a lot of instability coming to the Northern Africa, and a lot of uh, economic and, and migrants coming to Europe are actually coming from those regions and fueling smuggling networks that are operating in Libya and, and elsewhere in the region as well. Uh, thank you, first, for inviting me. Uh, thanks to the Atlantic Council. Uh, so I was introduced as being on the extreme left, so I feel like I have to do something, say something radical. Um, <laughs> look, this, uh, I, I, ending the civil war in Syria, it's been going on for five years. Uh, the, the, at the rate this is going, it's not gonna end unless we come up with something rather dramatic, something that's different. And um, so, what I would suggest now is a, is, a, is, a, is a dramatic option, but what I would like to say is, first of all, there is no military solution to this, and especially with the Russians in, as Paul said, uh, uh, there is a huge power against which the opposition is fighting, and it's unlikely that they, they, will, they will win. So what can, what can we do? And I, my suggestion is that we try to figure out a way to split Syria into East and West. I mean, the, the Sadat, uh, Sadat, Assad regime is almost consolidating. I mean, uh, the Damascus to Aleppo uh, highway, I mean, there are, you know, there the, are the details which don't fit. I mean, Ham, certain parts of Hama are not controlled by the, by, the, by the regime. But let's assume for one moment that we can essentially have East Syria and West Syria. Put the opposition, recognize the government as the government of Syria, put them on the east side, and then pour resources into, into that area, try to start rebuilding it, at least show the rest of the, rest of the region, but certainly the rest of the uh, Syrian public, that there is an alternative to Assad. Because at the moment, when you look at the situation, there is no alternative to Assad. The Assad part of the country is doing much better, obviously, than, than the war ravaged. And of course, this, is, this should be done after ISIS is, has been defeated. We can't, this can't be done before ISIS is defeated. But let's, once ISIS is defeated, then we can essentially think about rebuilding the East, bring back some of the refugees, if you, you create a, uh, some kind of a secure zone. I don't think the Russians are going to attack any, any government or any entity that is going to be backed by most of the countries uh, in the world. So this is a way out. Eventually, there may be just like East Germany and West Germany, but eventually, I think we can, we'll be able to figure out a solution. But at least in the, in the short term or into medium term, we can maybe alleviate the suffering and also give some hope to people. Otherwise, this is gonna go on until the last Syrian. I mean, civil wars end one way or the other, either by negotiation, and there's not gonna be negotiations here, or they end up because they're no more, no, on one side doesn't have anybody else to, the, to fight with. So this is, you know, I, I'm putting it out there, I'm not saying it's a perfect solution, but it is, what I'm trying to say is that we need to think not just in terms of security, but also in terms of politics, and we need to figure out another political option. And maybe this is not the idea, but at least the, what I'm trying to suggest is we have to come up with new creative ideas, because what we're doing now is not gonna work. Interesting. <laughs> interesting. No, very interesting. Um, in the interim, how do we work together to minimize the humanitarian suffering, and in particular, the killing of innocent civilians. And I throw that out to whoever might want to answer it. Could I, when I, when I got ready for this, I, I had the people that work for me do a, do a rundown of all our cooperation with the Europeans. And actually, it is both staggering in its breadth and in its depth. And, and I want to give you a couple of examples because everybody knows about the quartet and everybody knows about the Iran nuclear agreement and everybody knows about the, the, the Syria support group. But for instance, there are five European countries and the United States that basically work together to fund police in northern Syria. And together we've kept something like 35,000 civil servants 
um, fed, uh, working, uh, salaried, and and not only do they provide services, but they also provide a base for any sort of reconstruction. So the, the, we're absolutely replete with practical examples like that. And I think the communication uh, on the humanitarian side and coordination is just as well. In Tunisia, there's been a huge international effort to deconflict our resources and to be sure that the money and the technical assistance goes where it's supposed to go. Uh, I think that was absolutely vital. But, but there's somehow this impression that, that we don't cooperate with Europe and that Europe is shrinking. And, and at least from my vantage point, that's not true. There's not a day that goes by that we don't talk to the Europeans multiple times a day. It's an important perspective. I would just, uh, I, I, and I think working together in a multilateral way is the future. I mean, we've got to continue this. I guess it, it begs questions about expectations among the members of the multilateral or, uh, coalition of the willing, if you will. Um, it, when we were planning for the war in Iraq, there were, there were questions that were asked uh, you know, about the day after Saddam, what are we going to do? Are we going to rebuild Iraq? And if so, to what, to what level? Are we going to rebuild Iraq to a level that was pre-Saddam? or during Saddam, or after oil, uh, oil for food programs, or something new. And we never had an answer within the United States interagency. Uh, and it led to a lot of confusion. Now, you, you put that on a multilateral scale, it leaves the room wide open for a lot of various interpretations and, and uh, perhaps misunderstandings. <laughs> and in the worst case, it would be a, a waste of resources and, uh, and the disappointment of the people of the conflicted state, you know, uh, they, they would have expectations that would fail. And we have to remember these states have a, a, a basic fracture in the social contract between the people and the government. And for outsiders to come in and say, this is what we're going to do and fail, that only undercuts any growth of trust, if there had been any, between the people and the government. Um, one, of the, one of the instruments that the European Union has as, as, as institutions, apart from, from what, what the particular member states are doing, is of course potential to invest in the reconstruction of, of Syria once there are conditions for this. Um, and there is kind of preparatory work being done also with the World Bank, uh, trying to assess what is the level of damage. And so we, we are planning, we are preparing for this, for the day after. But when this day after will come, this is of course uh, um, kind of more and more uh, elusive uh, perspective. Uh, what, what the European Union as, as, as the institution can, can also offer to some extent, which is maybe to some extent also an untapped potential, it's, it's the political role of, of the European Union as such, uh, which has n not been very, very coming so much to the front in, in, in so far. Of course, EU is part of the ISSG and this is, is part of the, of the wider, wider discussions. Um, this was also a, kind of an offer signaled uh, at some point. I think everybody is looking for, for all kinds of solutions and trying to, to find a way forward, and the diplomatic track seems to be the only way forward uh, that, that everybody is trying to, to pursue, even if it doesn't augur uh, very well at the moment. Um, so your question was how to alleviate the suffering of the people at the moment. Yes, and we're looking for some out-of-the-box views from the left. I don't have, look, I don't have, look, I'm sorry, I don't have any, but the, Let's face it, I mean, we have a situation now where the Russians are bombing whenever they want to bomb and they kill people. How are we going to stop that? Right. What, are, what are we going to do? We're going to send the US Air Force? No, we're not going to do that. You heard what the uh, uh, Votel, I think, said the other day. Um, and so, so what's our alternative? I don't think we have one. So let's not kid ourselves. I mean, the Russians are going to take Aleppo, help the Syrians get Aleppo. Eventually, they're going dis to destroy it. So, so, and then they're going to go out after the other uh, pockets of resistance done, if you want that, that highway I, I mentioned. So there is, 
unless we figure out a solution, we figure out a way to confront Putin, right? Which this administration, because it's a, uh, it's leaving, can't do it. So the next administration will have will have to figure out how, how to do it, and that will take. By the time everybody's settled in and figured out, and all the plans are done, etc., it's going to take another three months, right? So let's not kid ourselves. We can't do it. You're optimistic. Three months. Huh? Right. <laughs> That's the only optimism I have. I mean. <laughs> well, well, let's segue more to the to the discussion of root causes. Um, there are millions of young people coming into the labor market uh, for whom there are not jobs. Um, and and uh, that is one cause of much of the dissatisfaction in the region. How do we begin to create growth and employment in the region? And what, what is it that specifically the US and Europe can do to address that? Well, we could, uh, we could open our markets more. And I know that's a very controversial thing to say. In, uh, in, in this kind of environment, but that's certainly one thing we can do. And the European Union has done some of that uh, to alleviate the situation in Jordan. Uh, uh, and of course, there is a gr great desire for additional resources. I mean, uh, the estimates on rebuilding Syria, and I, I agree with Henri, that's, uh, that's uh, definitely a long shot, is over $200 billion. And most people think that's on the conservative side. So the amount of re we should not we should not underestimate the amount of resources we're going to have to put into this, and to turn put into job creation, into revising the economy. Because at least one of the issues in Egypt was that it wasn't that education wasn't available to all these young people; it was the education was was second or third rate. So they came out of college with greatly enhanced expectations and had no skills available for the modern labor force. Um, and I think that's been a phenomenon throughout the Middle East to a greater or lesser extent. So it's going to take a massive investment in vocational training and skill development and, and high-end education that we at least so far have been unprepared to make. The long-term solutions are going to have to take they're going to have to consider these things. If we're dealing with a humanitarian crisis, that's pretty much the here and now. Uh, and it's a matter of, of keeping the multilateral coalition together to, to keep the idea of creating humanitarian space. And let's use Syria. We could use Libya. We could use Iraq. We could use a lot of different countries as examples. But let's take Syria. Creating humanitarian space. Uh, for the protection of the, the civilians and uh, aid workers. Uh, how would that be done today? Uh, we would have to also uh, undertake the, the sustained effort to keep this moving forward. But that's not enough for the long-term solution of the region. We need to have things that address the issues of, of economic fear, people not having a job, not feeling like they have a stake in the future of their country. Uh, the governance, the rule of law, the social well-being issues, in, in addition to the security issues. All of these have to be taken in a very systematic way um, and uh, a, a way forward for at least the United States government to consider was recently uh, discussed in a report that was uh, uh, issued by uh, uh, Brookings, uh, the Center for New American Studies, and uh, the, the U.S. Institute of Peace about fragile states. And I'd recommend that report to anybody because it lays out uh, a way forward. Uh, and that can be downloaded from the USIP website. Uh, Ambassador Patterson referred to, to the Jordanian case, and I think it's, it's uh, it's a good example of how the EU is trying now to have this new approach in, yeah. first of all, putting together all the instruments that we have at, at our disposal. Secondly, to work with the, with the country to understand really what, what is at stake, what are the difficulties. And then not just, uh, not just provide what, what the partner country is asking, but also insist on, on the country to making changes that we would like to see. So it has to be all somehow put together. And in the, in the case of Jordan, what we managed is uh, to negotiate uh, uh, facilities for the, for the Syrian refugees 
to access Jordanian market in exchange of better access for those companies in the economic zones that, that will be created on the Jordanian side to the European markets. So it will be a win-win situation also for the Jordanian economy. Those companies in the economic zones that will employ a certain percentage of Syrian refugees will have better access also to the European market. Um, plus also some macroeconomic assistance and, and some other facilities also in terms of education and so on and so on. For Lebanon, the situation is completely different, so it has to be tailored made, and there, there, our focus was to help, and also the Syrian refugees are, are somehow blended with, with the uh, Lebanese uh, society, so, so the support that is being provided by the European Union and that have been negotiated with Lebanon is, is also to provide some basic services, I don't know, waste, waste management, uh, uh, health education services that will benefit both the, the host country and then and, and, uh, the refugees. This, these, are, these are the two examples, but I think they, they show somehow the, this new approach of really putting together various trade-related mm -hmm. instruments, humanitarian assistance, development assistance, and partnership with the host country, but not, not, not uh, kind of a, just like in the past, sometimes the EU was, was relatively lenient in, in giving the, the assistance, but also uh, using this leverage to, to achieve what we think needs to be achieved to, to alleviate the refugee situation as well. So you, you mentioned, you, you, asked, you started by talking about root causes and you mentioned the economy, but the previous panel, which was actually terrific, uh, Michelle Dunn made a very uh, convincing case that the, it's, we can't just look at the economics. It isn't just that people don't have jobs. It is also the fact that there's corruption, there's no upward mobility, the, uh, the, yeah. the, the politics of those countries don't work. So. It's not one, one problem, right? And, and let's face it, it is also very, very difficult for the United States and Europe, and even if you bring in other countries as well, to actually tackle all of these problems in every single country. I mean, Egypt is, look, Egypt is, is uh, and would know this much better than me, Egypt is in terrible shape at the moment, right? All the indicators are, are, are going s south at the moment, right? So, um, so it's not just, um, it's a whole region that needs help. So people have talked about, let's, let's think about the Marshall Plan for the Middle East. One of the things about, the, there are many things about the Marshall Plan, but one of the things that we have to remember about the Marshall Plan is that it was, it was, it was essentially done to, and to rebuild countries that had been completely devastated by World War II. So if you take that starting point, Maybe you don't do a Marshall Plan for the whole region. Besides, you don't have the resources. I mean, look, in Europe and the United States, resources are becoming an issue. You, you see it in this election uh, cycle as well, how people are reacting to, to the use of aid and, and uh, other met, uh, means to help other people. So let's think of what are the countries that have been the most devastated. Obviously, Syria is one. Right? And, and maybe we, we apply a Marshall Plan for Syria, maybe for Libya, the two countries that have uh, I don't know enough about Yemen to be able to say anything here, but so maybe we should think about those two countries, or maybe we should think about Syria and Iraq, because one of the aspects of the Marshall Plan that was very important was that the Marshall Plan uh, had among, among its principles that people, regional, the countries in Europe had to integrate, had to uh, uh, trade with each other, uh, so in other words, and cooperate among themselves, right? So Libya and Syria won't be able to do it, but Libya and uh, Syria and Iraq can do it. So I mean, but we can't just fix the whole the whole region, even though the whole region needs fixing. All right. Can you, Could you I say? Should I want to say something about the more? I, I know there's a lot of discussion of this Marshall Plan, and I think I think Henri is right. You can't you can't just to take a figure, the, the Gulf has put $40 billion into Egypt in the past three years in either concessional oil or direct cash. So it's not just a matter of money. Uh, and, and I think Michelle Dunn is absolutely right. But, but we shouldn't kid ourselves that, frankly, other than the humanitarian side, which at least in our case is about $5 billion, that we haven't had really enough money to leverage some of the changes that we need to see in these, in these societies. We're talking about Iraq. Iraq has a tax-to-GDP ratio of 1.5%. I mean, it's one of the lowest taxation. It's an oil producer, major oil producer. Until these countries start to put in, in, into place some kind of 
fiscal and financial management and take responsibility, you're not going to really see vast reforms. But maybe with a Marshall Plan structured properly, and at least in a few places, you would have enough leverage to make real change, to leverage real change. Leverage on the governance side. Lever leverage on the governance side. I agree. I agree. Well, absolutely. Yeah, I would also agree. I, I think we, we have to be careful in, uh, it's a captivating idea, Marshall Plan, but it, it's somehow, the experience we now have is each and every country in the region basically has, has different kind of problems and different level of governance or, or, or internal conflicts. So it has to be a tailor-made solution and it has to be a solution that involves the countries in question. So it has to be with the authorities on the spot and also with the civil society on the spot. It has to be a good mix because the, also in the, in the previous panel, what, what I liked was this, this idea that one cannot work only with the civil society without having some kind of a buy-in buy of, the, of the authorities. And they have also, there has to be also some, some kind of leverage on the authorities to allow work with the civil society. So we cannot, as tempting as it could be, we cannot only go for those kind of pockets of stability without involving the country as such and, and governance structures as such. Sure. Uh, so th this is this is I think the the point that I wanted to make and also the level of, of um, financial involvement. We, for example, for this for those migration compact, pom compacts that I mentioned for the upcoming four years, we have eight billion euro uh, foreseen uh, specifically for, for tackling the, the, the migration issues. Um, but we have a lot of other ongoing programs and projects with the countries in the region. It, the money is there, if you wish, but it has to be used, used wisely. It has to be focused and has to be maybe uh, done in more even. We do a lot of coordination among ourselves, but we, we should maybe try to do even more. I don't see uh, chances for this kind of, um, of you know, grandiose Marshall Plan, or not even much of sense of, of doing this kind of grandiose plan for the whole region, like if the whole region would, would be basically the same, uh, the same space of, of, uh, of instability, of, of, of problems. I, I, just, I just want to caution people about the, the Marshall Plan, because the Marshall Plan only lasted four years, from 1947 to 1951, but what it did is it set in process a, a, it set a process in play for the integration of Western mm -hmm. Europe at the time. Uh, it, it actually focused initially on the issue of steel production in Germany and the availability of coal from France because all of the coal that Germany had had before World War II was now in East Germany. There was no access to it. And so by creating the dynamic to get the Germans and the French to talk to one another, and then providing the 50% of what it costs to build, uh, to rebuild Europe, uh, the United States helped set a process in play that uh, ultimately led to the, uh, to the creation of the EU. I mean, that's, that's where you guys came from. And of NATO as well. Yeah, and NATO as well. And that's another point to bring out. There were drawbacks to the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan helped exacerbate the Cold War, and it had other things. But I think over the span of history, people would agree that that was one of the greatest uh, foreign policy initiatives of the United States. Look, I, I would go one step further. I mean, what the Marshall Plan did was to re-industrialize Europe, because those societies were already industrialized. So you, I mean. So when, you th when we talk about the Marshall Plan for the Middle East, we shouldn't think of the Marshall Plan that we're going to have coal and steel, the coal and steel community between, I don't know, Libya and, and, and Egypt. Egypt. No, we have to, it, the Marshall Plan is a, it, it, it's a word that we use to show that there is a possibility of success. So you, you want to call it uh, something else, you want to call it the Patterson Plan, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But it, the, the, point, the point here is that we have to come up with some, something else. So we shouldn't be fixated on whether or not the Marshall Plan, uh, the, the, the conditions that made the Marshall Plan successful don't exist. Of course not. I mean, all over the, all over the Middle East, right, you do not have any significant industrial poten uh, potential at the moment. All industrial potential that exists is state-led and amazingly inefficient, uncompetitive, mm -hmm. and, can, and can only, f you know, Egyptian steel will only be used by Egyptian companies because nobody else wants, 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 that, wants that steel. So what do you do? I mean, think about one, one thing. I mean, 
you have a large population, you have a young population, all of it, and you have an amazing market right next across the Mediterranean from in Europe, right? So Europe buys enormous amount of stuff all the way from China. These are not very sophisticated products, right? Most of the, what people would call chachkas or whatever, uh, the consumer items that we buy, right, are not very sophisticated. These are, so you don't need to, you can create a consumer durable industry in, in, in those countries which have low labor costs. The consumer durable industries tend to hire, tend to employ lots of people as opposed to uh, steel and other, other uh, engine producing uh, industries. So the, there is a way of, of fashioning the, the future, right? But we seem to be so stuck at the moment in, in, in the lanes we are. And, and I'm not saying this is going to be done overnight. It's going to take a few generations. But the, the nice notion of the Marshall Plan was the Marshall Plan transformed Europe. So we need something that will transform. And maybe we'll have to start, because there's no money, we'll start to start slowly and then expand and create the same sort of zone of stability right. that we were able to create mm -hmm. in Europe. We're going to move to questions from the audience. Um, I would ask, there are a lot of hands up, uh, maybe we'll take a couple at a time, and I would ask each uh, questioner to have a question and, and make it brief if you could, and uh, also uh, to state your name and affiliation uh, when you begin the question. I'll start over here. Thanks, uh, Fred Hoff, Rafi Kariri Center here at the Atlantic Council. My, my question is for Assistant Secretary Patterson. I, I would imagine that a, an important facet of your job as Assistant Secretary is working with transatlantic partners on various types of cooperation, coordination, relationships, projects, et cetera, et cetera. As, as you look at the portfolio, you have right now. What are the highlights? Where are the areas where you think European partners are, are doing the heavy lifting, perhaps even punching above their weight? Uh, and are there areas where, where you can see a need for improvement? So, we're we're going to take it just a couple more okay, if we could. Okay. Over here, and then I'll go in the back. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council. My question is for Ambassador Patterson, but an observation about the Marshall Plan, we forget that the bulk of the money on the Marshall Plan was spent in the United States. And it was also part of a move to shift the economy from wartime to peacetime was matched by the GI Bill for housing and for education, which were dramatic. And so if we're looking at a Marshall Plan for the region, we should emulate those qualities which tend to be forgotten. Mm -hmm. uh, and my question is this concerning Russia. As you know, the Pentagon's four plus one planning matrix specifies Russia as our number one adversary. And our number one defense priority right now, believe it or not, is to deter and if war comes, to defeat Russia, which I think is absurd. But how much of a handicap is regarding Russia as an enemy, at least as far as the Pentagon, uh, disabling our efforts to reach some kind of an accommodation with them? And one more. Uh, in <laughs> back, uh, there's lots of hands up, but uh, okay. in the blue. That's a tough one. <laughs> mm. Thanks. Um, Kate Bateman, I'm a visiting fellow at the Center for New American Security. And um, my question is um, about corruption and uh, good governance. Um, it seemed to me that there's a thread through the whole morning's discussion that the lack of rule of law, um, poor governance, is one of the greatest obstacles to stability in the region. Um, but it also seems we're in a conundrum where um, many of the regimes or governments whom we would want to see reform are also very happy to maintain the status quo. They're the ones who are benefiting from it. It's not in their interest to undertake these reforms. Do you have any thoughts on how to get around that? Um, are we not using conditionality as aggressively as we should? Or should we be withholding visas from, for their children and families who come to the United States? And do you have any ideas on the, along those lines? Thanks. So maybe we'll start with you, Ambassador Patterson. I think we have Europe and how they're performing, Russia, and uh, the question of reform in the region. 
Uh, let me talk about the the areas. So so it's been the cooperation's been really dramatic in the counter ISIL coalition. I think forty of the sixty four countries are, and and European donations and leadership has been also very widespread. I think the Italians have done a, a really good job under very trying circumstances in Libya, and and they should take the lead because they have, they have, they have a really profound strategic interest there. Um, and, and I think in Syria, uh, that's an area, I think, it, despite some of the successes I mentioned in keeping, keeping things operating in northern Syria, that's probably an area where the Europeans could do more, uh, both on a political sense and, and maybe in post planning for post-reconstruction. Uh, I think the ISSG, you know, this, the, the, the Russian-American sort of friends of, of uh, Syria group, has, has certainly had ups and downs, but trying to be, that, that, that might be an area for greater cooperation. But again, it's very, very widespread across the whole region. And uh, to answer the Admiral. Um, so what I think Secretary Kerry would say is that the solution in Syria has to go through Russia. He has worked uh, assiduously to, to, with the Russians, <coughs> to bring about some diplomatic uh, solution in Syria. And I think many of us in this room have heard him say he was extremely skeptical, uh, but, but there's no other solution except to bring the Russians into the room. I want to say that I personally feel, I know people are very worried about, well, we are worried about Russia. Uh, I mean, Russia is sort of omnipresent now in the region, but we still have 58,000 troops in the region and then the Gulf. And while some of these uh, Middle Eastern leaders may run off to Russia, I mean, really? Russia, first of all, they sell things. They sell things for hard currency that a lot of our countries don't have. Uh, their diplomatic and, and certainly their social presence is exceedingly thin. So I think this Russian influence argument is frankly exaggerated, although it's something, believe me, that we want to watch because it's troublesome. Someone else. Anyone else want to jump in? Well, uh, with regards to Russia, yeah, I mean, Russia got kicked out of the region once before. It and did. I'm convinced they'll get kicked out again. But in the short term, when you have S-300 and S-400 air defense batteries in, in northeast or northwest Syria, that gets pretty doggone close to Inzerlik and uh, uh, some of our other bases. And it stretches down, and most of Israel is now covered by this air defense umbrella. So it, it is a constraint that has to be considered. 58,000 troops uh, in the region are mostly Air Force troops, not many Army troops on the ground, uh, and that makes a big difference as well. Uh, so our force imbalance is, is, uh, is different. The, the correlation of forces, to use the old Soviet term, is definitely favoring Russia at this particular time. And the next administration will have to think hard about convincing the American people of potential options it may need to consider mm -hmm. with regards to applying all forms of American power, whether it's economic, diplomatic, or militarily. Let me take a crack at the corruption issue. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the regimes benefit from corruption. I mean, that's what sustains them. I mean, the aid flows essentially is what keeps, keeps them in power. The question is, can we find places where we can actually use aid as, as, as a lever? I mean, I think in Egypt it's going to be very difficult. I mean, we're very worried that there will be uprising in Egypt and Egypt will go. So I know both Europe and the international community will continue to, to give money to Egypt. We don't have a choice. But the question is, you need to slowly find ways of changing. Right. One of the things that is, you also heard it in the previous panel, I mean, the things are changing to some extent in the region. I mean, the new technologies, uh, the fact that people can inform each other, right? It's not that easy for, for, for the regimes and, and the cronies to, to get away with things because people will take a picture with an iPhone and then, and then, and then post it, right? So, there is an incipient democratization that's coming, and can we figure out ways of accelerating that? That's what we can do. Great. Let's take 
two more questions, and then probably we have to wrap up. And uh, maybe Greg over here, and then over in the black and white over here. Uh, thank you, Greg Aftandilian with American University. A uh, question for Henri, when you spoke about uh, the potential for some of these Middle Eastern countries to produce consumer goods for the European market. I think that's a very interesting point. But my question is, what about the young intelligentsia? In other words, the people who would not be at the factory level. Um, what, what is the prospect for their jobs? Because we've heard from the previous panel, they're coming out with um, inferior education from state universities, uh, but their expectations are quite high. And the, of course, we all know the story that the state bureaucracies are so bloated they can't employ these people anymore. So what's the solution for that segment of the youth? Thank you. And over Look, here. Oh, sorry. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Nancy, and I work for the uh, government in the intel community. And I have a question. This actually was a question that's carried over in this discussion from the previous uh, panel. I wasn't able to ask it, but it centers on um, the refugee crisis. And uh, my question is, how do we reconcile um, giving aid or assisting countries and accepting uh, the refugees into their country, but at the same time have the same discussion of helping to give employment and jobs to the population that's living in that country. Because I've came, I, I just came from the Middle East recently and the salons that I went into or any of the you know um, not very high level education, just technical jobs, they've, they're all Syrian refugees who are in those jobs just recently. And we're talking about trying to develop and, and help the indigenous population. Uh, you know, for stability reasons, if we're saying that uh, the economic reason is a very big factor of um, of instability in that country. So I just, I haven't heard a really good um, reconciliation for how do we do both. And then a second part to that question is, what is the EU and the, and the US doing to pressure Saudi into accepting more refugees, if they're even taking any refugees. I, I know that they're providing a lot of funding for other Arab countries to take in refugees into their own countries, whether it's Jordan or Egypt, and they're giving a lot of money so that the refugee crisis becomes those countries' problems. But how come the very rich countries in the Middle East, like the Gulf, are not doing their fair share with taking in refugees on their own, and how do we help that situation? Uh, Greg, it's a hard question. I mean, it is not a question that can be answered uh, quickly in the sense that the expansion of the economies will create jobs in which these semi-skilled uh, university graduates will eventually be absorbed. But look, the, in all societies, you do have a segment of people who finish universities or two-year colleges who are not very uh, uh, skilled and essentially take managerial jobs in 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 different organizations and so this this is something that will have to be solved with the expansion of the economy you can't suddenly say all these people will, will get jobs in X Y and Z because X Y and Z doesn't exist yet right I mean the, look the problem of the Middle East in, in terms of economic development is one of the most difficult things that has ever existed if you ask me I mean, it's really mind-boggling in terms of, because you don't know where to start, yeah. right? You really do not know where to start. And on top of that, you have regimes that are, are, are a problem rather than a solution, right? And don't want to create solutions. Well, one of the things that I would offer is uh, expansion of the economy is good, but what they need to do is diversify their economies. Well, too, that was my point about consumer yeah, consumer. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, too many of these economies are, are, are energy-based. And uh, when you don't have enough jobs in the energy sector, you hire people into the government, and it becomes, as Greg pointed out, a bloated bureaucracy that you know, is self-defeating. Right, but Egypt doesn't have energy, right? Mm. right? So Jordan doesn't have energy. I mean, there are countries that don't rely on energy. I mean, they rely on the rents of energy from the, from the Gulf. That's what has kept them alive. It's not American aid. It's really the Gulf that has kept them, kept them going. With Egypt, yeah. We have just two minutes, but Helen. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I just want to make a point about strategic patience, because I think there are no easy fixes in any of those uh, cases. And it's for us, as, as kind of donor or, or international partners who try to support those countries in, in, the, in their journey, 
we simply have to work on, on all fronts and, and try to be patient and try to uh, foresee. In, in the EU case, it's a bit easier because we have this multi-annual planning and we always have you know, money somehow ready for, for when the opportunities present themselves. It's maybe a bit more difficult for the, for the individual countries to all of a sudden be able to jump in and, and, and help uh, when there is when there are some hopeful moments of, of, um, of positive developments. Um, and I think what we do, for example, now with Tunisia, what we potentially could do if there is at some point uh, uh, some kind of a solution for Syria, we, we simply have to be ready. It's, it, there is no easy fix that can you know, change the situation overnight and we have to look and, and be patient and, and look for opportunities to, to do something useful. Could I answer the question about the Gulf? What the, let me give you a figure. There are 100,000 Syrians in Qatar and there are 250,000 Qataris, native Qataris. So it's not that there are not a lot of Syrians living in these countries. They're there under basically as guest workers and work permits. I think it's fair to say that you cannot expect, you're not going to get the Gulf countries to take in a lot of what we would classify as refugees. That's just a fact. So what we're going to do, and, and frankly, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and Qatar, they've all been, frankly, enormous donors to this refugee problem. But, but I, for one, don't think we should bang our head against a wall and ask them to take in these, what it, essentially are refugee camps, which, they, again, they're not going to do. But it's not that they don't have a lot of Syrians living in these countries who have come in in the past five years. They're just under a different status. We get, we get very hung up on this issue of the, of the refugee status, and it's just not going to happen. What we should ask them for and what we do ask them for and what we've gotten a lot of from them is, is money to support the international uh, humanitarian effort. One thing I would just add about the refugee crisis is it's not just refugees. You have internally displaced people, right. too. If you look at Iraq, there is a significant chunk of the population that are IDPs because of ISIS. And as they try to return to their homes, there's the threat of revenge killings and things of that nature. And, and the Institute of Peace is actually on the ground in Iraq working on reconciliation processes to bring the, the belligerents together to agree to a way to vet people that are returning and for people to be adjudicated in accordance to the, with the rule of law. But that's a huge issue on these countries because as long as the IDPs are out there, it's more pressure on local communities, it's destabilizing, and it can undo what we've gained so far. Great. Thank you all for spending your morning with us for what I hope were very meaty conversations. Um, they certainly were in my view. Uh, let me just thank the state secretary and the Swedish government for their partnership in this. And 